The letter to the Hebrews, chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, the scepter of uprightness, is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. I've said it on multiple occasions that my aim and goal in expository preaching, that is preaching which examines line by line, idea by idea, through the word of God, is to uh, put in you or to build within you an understanding of the scriptures. I want you to be Christians who are not confused as to what the Bible talks about. Many Christians live for decades with this thought of, I know I should read the Bible, I know it's profitable for me, but I don't really understand what God was doing in the Old Testament times. I don't really understand the major narrative arc. I don't really understand the major purpose. Why didn't God just send Jesus right away? Why did God do this whole thing with Israel that ultimately seemingly didn't work? I want you to be Christians who understand the sovereign plan of God as he worked with people in creating an environment and a context that the glory of Christ would be seen. And that glory, which is seen, would be a revelation of the Father's heart for not only humanity, but ultimately for himself to be glorified in the sons of men. And so I have, uh, for years now, we have taken time through the Old Testament scriptures, and we have learned those stories, we've learned those narratives in such a way as we have a competency now of what they talk about, so that now when we approach a book like Hebrews, we can understand what they're referring to. 
and I believe that uh, as the New Testament plainly teaches that the, the, the word of God is milk, but at some point in your development, you need to add to milk, you need to add meat. And so the book of Hebrews, at the very core of the book, encourages the audience, the writer encourages the audience to begin to move past the elementary doctrines of Christ. And by that, he does not mean forsaking That is, when we say leave the elementary doctrines, we don't mean forsaking justification by faith. We don't mean forsaking the gracious aspect of God's covenant, but rather beginning to walk as mature men. And in fact, when you look at the entire New Testament, you see over and over again a call to maturity. Paul says, our aim, our goal is to present every man mature in Christ. And so as people who are walking with the Lord, we must begin to add to that foundation, things that pertain to godliness. That is, we cannot simply stay children operating and relating to God as, oh, we sinned and messed up and we get forgiven, and that's just where we stay forever. No, in fact, the New Testament says that those who have the seed of God or the word of God in them, they overcome the world, they stop sinning, according to John's first epistle. And these aren't to be understood as perfection attained, but they are, they are to be understood as there is a maturity and a progress in the people of God. There is a holiness, as the book of Hebrews says, as we'll see in the next few weeks, there is a holiness without which no one can see the Lord. And so I would just encourage you that as we embark on a new journey, today is in the official launch of a new uh, journey through the book of Hebrews. I'm going to do basically a 10-week Uh, engagement with the book. We may do two chapters one week. We may just do one chapter a week. But essentially, what I want to impress upon you is after, especially those who've been at our church for a while, you are now ready to understand what these things are talking about. Uh, Many young Christians I hear, they come to me and they want me to explain Revelation to them. And I say, you're not ready. (laughs) Because if you don't know Daniel and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and if you don't know Exodus, you cannot understand Revelation. Because Revelation is built on a, a symbolic language. It's, a, it's just as a, a legend exists on the face of a map, so also Revelation is a, uh, a book, it's a codex that has a key, and that key is rightly understood through the Old Covenant, through the types and symbols that are seen, the imagery. And so I believe that at this point in our church, when we have so many young people who are adding to their faith, discipline and character and steadfastness, that it would be right now with the tool set that we have to do an engagement with the book of Hebrews. And so just before we get into the book of Hebrews, I'm not going to discuss the authorship of Hebrews. It's not, we're not told who is the author. I think it's Paul, but that, if you want to know why I think that, you can buy me lunch this week. And... Um, <laughs> And I'll tell you then. But I want to talk about the purpose of the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews begins with a treatment of the deity of the Son of God. And that's where we're going to begin. So this, the purpose of this letter is to demonstrate the new covenant as being fully arrived or fully culminated in the arrival of Jesus Christ. That is to say that God, as, as the epistle opens, God has spoken to us in many ways. But now he has spoken to us in his Son. And the point of this is not, as the dispensationalists claim, that God has changed the manner of the covenant, but rather, God, the, the, the Hebrew writer is saying that God has fulfilled everything he was saying in the covenants. That is, there is no other word coming from God. God sent his final word in the Son. 
Christ is the fulfillment of all which was prophesied and promised in former days. That was the major study or focus in our series of Christ in the New Testament. We've seen over and over again how Christ fulfills that which was promised and fulfills the shadow that, that existed in the Old Covenant. And the book of Hebrews is a great ma- uh, major treatise or an engagement with those texts. And so as the epistle writer or the Hebrew writer says, he shows the fullness brought about by Christ, and then he warns his hearers that if they do not pay attention to Christ, there is nothing else coming. And this is a great important message for Christians, especially those who uh, attend church routinely, who, who are near the things of the faith but aren't beginning to walk in accordance with the obedience of faith, that there is nothing after Christ. That is, there's nothing, it's not as if, you know, if they don't accept Moses, well, then they'll probably accept the temple. If they don't accept the temple, then they'll accept the return from the temple. No, there is nothing after Christ. Christ is the final word of God concerning righteousness. And his word, that is, who Christ is as his person in his ministry, is a full and final revelation of the heart of the Father. And so neglecting, uh, neglecting Christ is neglecting God. This epistle is written to warn these Hebrew Christians against apostasy and unbelief, that is, turning away from the, the principal aspects of the gospel and slipping back into Judaism. And uh, I believe that's kind of the major arc, but it's not just avoiding Judaism. It's also avoiding all of the enemies of the gospel, legalism, uh, Gnosticism, or this, this belief that I can be spiritually minded, but it doesn't matter if I obey because God's forgiveness never ends. I, I hear Christians say these things that I think are patently false and slightly ridiculous when they say things like, God never gives up on someone. And I just have to say that God all the time gives up on someone. What do you think dying without knowing who God is? God is patient with people. He is extremely patient, and yet not all come to faith. And so God, God upholds or puts up with the sinner for, for decades, and is constantly calling him to righteousness, but he will not turn. And so this is what the book of Hebrews is really about. It's about becoming awake to the reality that, that Christ is made manifest. He has come. We know what righteousness is according to him. Therefore, we must give all the more attention to the word that we've heard. And so the book of Hebrews is extremely timely, not only from our church, but also this age. That's why it's the word of God. Throughout the letter, the writer expounds the scriptures, training his audience both how to understand and he gives content for the faith through the glories of Christ. What do I mean by that? I mean that the book of Hebrews is training in a hermeneutical method. If you remember last week, I said that exact phrase. I want to train you how to understand. How do we as Christians read the, New, the Old Testament or the Old Covenant scriptures in order to, be, to, to have them be profitable for us? And what the Hebrew writer, along with Paul in 1 Corinthians, he, he says that these things were done for us as examples. And what his whole point is, is if these things prove to be true warnings, if these were really, if there were real consequences in the Old Covenant, then how much more ought we to uphold and, and count as, as precious the blood of Christ? That's really the major arc of the, of the epistle written to the Hebrews. And I think it's a great one, uh, one that we would add 
uh, one that would do, do us well to add to our faith. I think there, as Kevin DeYoung wrote a book a few years ago called The Hole in Our Holiness, I think that is a great title for a book. Uh, I, I would recommend it if you're interested. But essentially, the, the book of Hebrews is essentially a, a warning shot across the bow of those who are just adrift you know, kind of aimlessly not pursuing Christ, but but somewhat near him and somewhat party to the things of the faith. It's it's a warning saying, if you treat the blood of Christ this way, there no longer is any atonement. If you've set aside Moses, you 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 are already condemned. But if you set aside Christ, how much more? And so as people who now have a, a competency with the Old Testament, I think it's right that we go on this journey. Finally, the epistle closes demonstrating the faith-filled obedience of the people of God. In the last few chapters, the Hebrew writer engages with all of the patriarchs and the kings of old and some of their wives and the various people of the faith, and he shows how that was a faith-filled obedience, uh, demonstrating that the nature of the covenant has always been the same, that it is faith which is necessary for obedience, and that faith which is authentic produces in obedience. And therefore, he then says, if that's the case, if this was faithful, if Jesus himself, as the culmination of all the faith-filled believers in, uh, in time ago, if he operated in faith, trusting that the Father would vindicate him, then all the more we ought to be willing to suffer for Christ and willing to be identified with Christ and throwing off anything that should hold us back. He does this in order to admonish that they would not only be faithful, but that they would obey in the church. That is to say that they would behave according to the claims of the gospel, that Christ is king, that he's a gracious king, and has a gracious kingdom. And so as we go through the book of Hebrews, I want you to remember all that you've heard in this church over the years about the aspects of the old covenant, and that's which those things that show the nature of God. I want you to understand them in the light of the book of Hebrews as it shows us the gospel. So I want to look at four aspects. I want to look at Jesus Christ as the final word from Yahweh. I want to look at the deity of the Son of God proved in this, pa- in this uh, chapter through the recitation and engagement with various psalms. I want to look at the reign of Christ and then finally the victory of Christ. It is not enough that we believe that Christ reigns Now, if we don't also believe that he's victorious eventually, then his reign is trivial. His reign is a a fantasy. It's not a real reign. It's a theoretical reign. It's a spiritual reign without any reality behind it. And so uh, as we begin this, this letter, it begins where all good letters from the apostles come from. It begins with a revelation of the gospel through the Son of God. The Hebrew writer considers the revelation that Yahweh has given to his people through patriarch and prophet, both circumstance and covenant, the things that God has done in explicit detail, dictating through a prophet or one of the patriarchs, as well as the examples that he's given through the circumstances. He considers these faithful believers that he's writing to as those who are the recipients of the covenants of God. That is, Christianity is not this kind of new thing when Jesus shows up, and it's a complete break from everything that God's done in the past. He says that they are the recipients, and he does this with the word, our fathers. He says, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. He identifies these Hebrew Christians as 
people who are the receivers or they're the recipients of the covenants of God. It is not a new thing that God is doing, although it is a new covenant made manifest. It's not something that was different from the word of God, but rather it was, anti- uh, it was precedent to. It just came before. It's not a different word, but rather it was an introductory word. And he does this showing that all of the deity of the Son is proved from those things which were spoken. He says in verse 2, But in these days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Yahweh is not a silent God. One of the accusations of the idolaters in the Old Testament is that their gods, they don't speak. They, they have hands, but they don't act. They have feet, but they don't move. If you think about all the various idols in the Old Covenant, they're always idols that are served by man. They never serve men. They never help. They need help. And so the, the image here is that this is, Yahweh is not a God who is without a voice. He has something to say, and that which was said is his son. The Father's action in creation is a participation with the Son, Therefore, the Son is not a created being. This is decidedly against those who would advocate for either uh, you know, Jehovah's Witness or uh, the Mormons who interpret this passage and others as saying that the Son of God was a created being or that he is somehow less in glory than the Father. The Son is not a created being but is eternal, and he is the one who is the heir of creation, and he is the one through whom creation was made. And so it's exactly like in John 1, if Jesus Christ was the one through whom all things were made, then he must logically not be a thing that has been made. Though the Son was hidden, that is not manifest to Israel, he exists eternally. And this eternal existence of the Son of God is so important that the church actually had theological battles against those who were spreading heresy in denying the eternality of the Son of God. This is why we understand the creeds to be so important, because they help us understand what are the bounds of true orthodoxy. What are those things which are necessary to be believed? The Son exists eternally and is co-equal with the Father and the Spirit in majesty and glory. If you want a great devotional exercise, I would encourage you to go on ccel.org and look up the symbol of Chalcedon. It is a masterful statement from the early church fathers concerning our faith, which is a mystery in the Holy Trinity. And it rightly understands, the, the fathers teach rightly, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are co-equal in majesty, co-equal in glory, different only as regards role and function, but not in a way that subordinates the Son to the Father. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is a phrase that is a lot often used about things that leave their mark on something. If you have ever seen cattle as they're wrangled, they get branded. And that mark identifies who owns the cattle. Now, I'm not comparing the Son of God. I'm just trying to explain the symbology behind this idea of exact imprint. That is to say that the Father has left a true mark, and that true mark that which reveals his nature is his Son. We're going to examine in just a minute how is the Son of God considered to be the Son and why the doctrine of the Trinity is so important. 
so as not to be disturbed or destroyed. It is the, the pinnacle of the foundation for our faith. If Jesus Christ is not deity, his atonement is nothing. And if Jesus Christ is not humanity, then the atonement cannot apply. This is what the Hebrew writer is saying at the very beginning of his treatment of the old covenant promises as being fulfilled in Christ. He says that Christ is both deity and man. He, ex- he is the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Think about the power of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who sustains and upholds all things. This is a, a, a marvelous revelation, because most of us, when we think about reality, I just want you to do a, a, a thought experiment for a second. I want you to imagine a giant rectangular prism, and that is the domain of the universe. Okay, when most of us approach that, we think of this abstract space which exists and it is the set of all created things and we think all of that can exist and then we begin to think like the agnostics and atheists and say, well, does God exist or does God not exist? As some idea that's tangential to, not connected to, the, the fact of reality. But Hebrews is presenting Jesus, the Son of God, as the one who upholds everything. Therefore, there is nothing outside of God. That is to say, his word is the sustaining power for all that is, and there is nothing that is not in him. This is the God we serve. This is the glory of Jesus Christ as seen through the Hebrew writer's revelation. He understands these things and then engages with the Old Covenant scriptures to show that these were always the case and are now made manifest in Jesus By the phrase, the exact imprint of his nature, we see the perfect eternal generation of the Son by the Father. I want you to begin to expand your understanding of of the person of Jesus Christ by getting some theological language because it helps you to create uh, meditation and, and awe and wonder about who this one is. You were made to know God, and it helps sometimes to add theological language in order that you would know this God who's revealed himself. What the Hebrew writer is saying is that this generation or the begetting from the father to the son is so perfect, and you can't even use, use a qualifier on the word perfect, but I'm doing it anyway. It's so perfect that it is without any degree or quality of difference such that the son would be in any way less than the father. And how that works is a wonderful and divine mystery. The Father's begetting of the Son is perfect, and the eternal generation of the Son, which was done from long ago, from a time past that we can't even rightly call time, but rather a state of being within God, that it is said to be such that Jesus not only has life in himself, but he has the same glory and the same majesty with the Father. These things give great implication or have great importance to the way that we understand human relationship, authority, submission, etc. But they're not to be confused with the way that God in himself understands his person, or that is his being, and the three persons as they relate in that being. The Son is not lesser in glory because of his position as the Son. Not because of his filiation, that is, because of his sonship, nor is, it, is he less in glory because of his role. He is not lesser in glory in any way 
but rather has the same glory. The Son of God is seen here as the sustainer of the universe, such that nothing exists outside of Christ. The writer contrasts the Son of God as the final word from the Father to the angels or messengers who have spoken before. This is something that's a little bit tricky for us as non-Greek readers, but the word angels does not mean only angelic beings, but it also means messengers. So when the Hebrew writer says angels, he also includes all those who have spoken before. That's the contrast here in this passage. As you see at the beginning, long ago, God spoke in many ways and types or times, and now he's spoken through his son. And so here, of course, that is as mediated by angels, but it's not simply talking about angelic beings. Verse five, for, which, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. By today, the psalmist does not mean a human day. I want you to firmly establish this in your minds. There was not a day on which the son of God was begotten. It is a heresy, and therefore you must reject it from your thinking about Christ to believe that the Son of God did not exist before the Incarnation. The Son of God eternally exists in the bosom of his Father, and that was hidden, but now has been made manifest, as the Hebrew writer says. The writer quotes this psalm, uh, part of Isaiah and part of a psalm as saying an eternal day or an everlasting now, a state of being within God himself. This is even very hard for us to experience or, or think about because you and I, everything that we know or acquire knowledge in or experience, it's all done in time. And so we, we can't even imagine a timeless being, a being who changes not, but we, we only have the capacity to think about it, not really to comprehend it, not really to be able to enter in to meditate it on, on it fully, but rather we can just as though looking through a glass at an object far away on a foggy day, we can somewhat behold it, but only vaguely. Here the Hebrew writer is showing the glory of Christ as being eternal with the Father, the, the one through whom the Father made the world, and also eternally generated. That is to say that the Son of God exists forever. It is improper to say, therefore, that there is a time where the Son is not. That is how wonderful our faith is in a mystery. This is how, beauty, uh, how beautiful the Son of God is, that his eternal generation, his filiation, his sonship is a perfect sonship from the Father. There's no error in it. There's no, uh, there's no lack of glory in it. Now, I want to talk about the sonship of Jesus, or that is to say the sonship of God the Son. This is a, a subject that's almost never discussed, and it's somewhat a little bit inaccessible unless you begin to add these language, add this type of speaking such as eternal generation or sonship. But I want you to understand that the son of God is not designated as the son of God. He's not considered to be the son of God as regards his deity. That is, he has the same exact glory with the father and the spirit. Therefore, if it was regard to his deity, the father or the spirit could be considered to be the son, nor is he a son nor is he the son as regards his humanity. He does not acquire sonship in the incarnation. He is eternally the son, and therefore his sonship regards person. 
his son his sonship isn't with respect to his office because he was the son before he took up his role his sonship is is as regards his person and this is a great wonderful doctrine with great implications and it will create awe within you as you meditate on and pray through and glory in and delight in God as you explore these things. The writer then considers the fittingness of the reign of Christ upon the throne of God. He doesn't do it in order, Christ is not exalted to the throne because of his obedience alone, but rather that his obedience was fitting to his person. Verse three, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This, is a, this next phrase has been the subject of many of our uh, celebrations of, of the ascension that we've had now for three years. He says, the Hebrew writer says that after making purification for sins, he, that is the son, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, this is where... This is why I spent so much time talking about the eternal generation and the fact that Jesus, or the Son of God, does not change with regard to quality and deity, but rather is co-equal in majesty, co-equal in glory with the Father and the Spirit. Because this language of having become drives us to ask, how can the eternal Son of God become anything? If he is truly God, how does this fit? And now we know, we have a prior commitment that the scripture cannot be broken. The word of God plainly attests to itself that it is a revelation from God without error, and it's profitable in every way. So how are we to know, as Christians who want to uphold the authority of the word of God and understand the person of the Son, how are we to understand, verse 4, having become as much superior to angels? This is a great trip-up verse for many young believers, and I don't want you to have any problem with it. And I'm, show, I'm going to show you how, but it, it's right to engage your mind in these things. You were created with a noble purpose. You were created with a mind that could comprehend these things, being aided by the Spirit. And it is the highest quality of understanding to meditate on the nature of the Son of God and the, the person of God. And so how are we to understand having become? We're to understand it with regards to his person in time through the incarnation. That is, the eternal God, the Son of God, took on flesh, and through that taking on of flesh was made manifest to his people, and in that manifestation, the Son perfectly obeyed and represented the Father, doing everything according to how the Father would want it to be done. And this is exactly what the son's obedience is for us. It's a great example. It's the premium example of the condescension or humiliation of the son of God such that he would be an example for us. The whole moral of this passage, in fact, the whole moral of the book is if the son of God, eternally glorious with the father and the spirit, can come and take on flesh and suffer then who are you or I to complain in the light of afflictions and trivial things, which only last for a few days or years at most? The whole point is that in seeing Jesus, we would be able to meditate on his glory and beauty and be inspired through awe and right worship to obey the Father all the more. The Son does not change in regards to nature or quality 
concerning his glory, but only as concerning his humanity. And it's connected to the prior verse. This is something that is a great uh, benefit to, to people as they learn to read the Bible. Sometimes the verses are in bad places. Sometimes the chapters are in very bad places. But I want you to look at verse 4. Notice that, it, especially in the ESV, it is not capitalized. This is something that comes as a shock to most young Christians. The original text of this letter does not have punctuation, and it really doesn't have the end of a sentence anywhere. There are occasionally new paragraph breaks in the, in the manuscripts, uh, or the autographs, rather, that, that is the original copies. But in the way that this language is written, the Greek that is the backing for our English transla translation, it doesn't have sentence ends. It is a continuation of thought. Now, this isn't what modern people advocate stream of conscious speaking. It's rightly considered and it's ordered, but verse 4 is not the beginning of a new idea. Verse 4, having become, is connected to after making purifications of sin, he sat down. It's connected to his action in time. It is not saying that the Son became more God through the Incarnation. He was fully God forever. And so understanding this, we move on to see, not only does he dwell eternally with the Father and Spirit, possessing majesty and glory with them, that through the Incarnation, the Son grows in favor. It's not a, it's not a problem to understand the Son of God's action in time, once we begin to understand that this is regards the incarnation, that is, his humanity grew in grace. The Son of God grows in favor, obeys the Father, makes an atonement, and is vindicated in the Spirit all in time. The eternal God has stepped down now into time and has made a revelation of the eternal one so that we who were in his creation, those who he called predestined, chose elected and adopted in Christ would be able to see it. This is glorious. The writer examines the Son's glory which he possesses with the Father in order to show the stark contrast to the humiliation and condescension of the Son. I want you to think about this eternally with the Father and the Spirit, existing for all time, even indeed outside of time, in perfect glory, perfect love, perfect harmony, the Father and the Son dwelling without any difference of opinion, one will being unified among God. That is, in God himself, there was no division or uh, preference that was not shared by the others. Everything within God himself is harmonious and perfect. And that one, the Son of God, who dwells with the Father and the Spirit, steps down into time takes on flesh, allows his glory for a time to be veiled, empties himself, as Philippians tells us, takes on the form of a servant and endures rejection and repression, oppression and war, strife, murder, beatings, floggings, being spit on, being despised by those who were party to the covenant that he himself made. Finally, we see through the Hebrew writer's examination of th these things that the one through whom creation was made, the one through whom Adam was made, now has taken on Adam's form himself. God has stepped down. He's not like the other gods. He's not like Allah who is without change but doesn't have any representation. He's not this abstract monad. He's not an idea. He's not a philosophy. He's not as the Greeks say who is just this 
beingness of good, but rather he is a God who speaks. He is a God who acts. He is a God who comes into time and answers the problem of sin. This is all done, the Hebrew writer's entire purpose in beginning his letter to encourage the Hebrew Christians to obey and to be filled with faith and to not lose hope, it's all done in order that they would be inspired by this example. It is not enough to know these things. You must know them in order that you can say in the very moment of need, in the very time of temptation, where you find yourself either wanting to despair, thinking that God's promises will not be fulfilled, or tempted to engage in sin, that at that very moment you can say to yourself, I know one who is eternal, who not only is eternal but came down into time and knows what it's like to be me. And he was perfected through the things that he suffered. Therefore, I can lay aside everything that entangles me. I can lay aside those things which are temptations now because I know that they don't last. This is why the reign of Christ is so important. Verse 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. I love that verse. There's this one song where this worship leader out at IHOP is singing this, and it's, it's awe-inspiring because he shouts it like he means it. Now, I'm not all for just, you know, exuberance for the sake of it, but there, there is a terror to this. That is to say, if Jesus' reign is founded on righteousness, peace, love of the Father, if righteousness is the scepter of his kingdom, then what are all these other players and fakes doing when they use anything other than righteousness as the scepter of their kingdoms? This is what the reign of Christ means today in time. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. We rightly understand the psalmist to be saying that the Father has anointed the Son of God with the oil of gladness being a symbol and type of the Spirit of God, such that in receiving the oil of gladness, he might be able to bestow it upon all those who have faith in his name. This we see beginning at Pentecost, but it exists as an eternal reality now. Now that the Son has taken place at the right hand of the Father, he reigns, and he reigns through his Spirit in the church. But it is not a reign that only exists in the church. It exists over all the kings of the earth, and that's exactly what the Psalms teach us as the Hebrew writer engages with them. The writer considers the prophecy concerning Christ made long ago in order to show Christ's deity and reign. Though the Son was at the Father's side, he is now made manifest. He is now represented and rightly seen as the one who sits upon the throne. In seeing that the reign of the Son is eternal and ever-increasing, his eventual victory therefore follows. I want you to think about this for a second. A king who is opposed in his land, is his kingdom perfect? If there's an invasion in the land or the dominion, the kingdom, the dominion of the king, if there is an invasion in that land, what will the king do? Will he not raise his army and ride out to defeat them? Yes, he will. That, just in case you didn't know this, that's what kings do. We live in America and Britain has a queen and she's very old. There's not a lot of understanding about kings anymore. That's probably tragic. I'd take a righteous king over what we've got now. But anyway, the point being that 
if Christ is eternally reigning, is he reigning over a kingdom that he has true dominion over? Yes and amen. Is that dominion seen yet fully? No, as we'll look in the next few chapters in Hebrews. But rightly understanding that his reign is eternal, it therefore logically follows that he will be victorious. The writer ends his engagement quoting Psalm 110, showing that the words apply to the son, specifically the ending of his session. By session, I mean his seating down. That is, um, intercession is the thing that Christ does in praying for us, and that session of Christ is his seated, uh, seated nature on the throne. Specifically ending his session at the final triumph of his enemies. Christ does not leave his throne until his rule is done. As 1 Corinthians 15 says, after he has subjected all his enemies, then he will come and bring about the end in which he hands the kingdom over to the Father. Many Christians today teach that that's when the kingdom actually begins. Up until then, there's going to be no progress, there's no surety of victory, there's no actual advance of God's kingdom, but rather that when Christ comes, he will finally kill all the bad people, and also that's when the world will melt we're going to be somehow out of the way so we don't melt on the world. The point being that Christ will actually bring his kingdom then. No, brothers and sisters, his kingdom is come. Jesus said at the very words of the beginning of his gospel was, the kingdom is at hand. He doesn't say the kingdom's far off or the kingdom's eventually coming or two or 3,000 years later the kingdom will show up. He says the kingdom is at hand. It's something within his grasp. The kingdom came Jesus brought his kingdom and rules over that kingdom even now. Therefore, we understand what will take place. Verse 13, to which of the angels, the, the implication is here that the answer is none. To which of the angels has he ever said? That is, in proving the Son of God, he takes as for granted the victory of the reign of Christ. Verse 13, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What do you do with feet? You trample on things. You walk on them. They're not glorious. They're not upheld in, in awe for other men to, to consider and emulate. They are shown as nothing, worthless, trivial, defeated. That's what you do when you put your feet on something as a king. Not only does this necessitate the victory of Christ in history, it's also given by the writer to encourage persistence in the light of immediate adversity. What do I mean by that? I mean that when you face any sort of adversity, whether it's just simply the pessimism of your mind as you've been imbibing the spirit of the age, which is doom and gloom, even engaged in by large parts of the church, uh, when, when that temptation comes up and you are you're, you're wondering, should I despair? Should I have hope for the future? You, you have an answer. There's no doubt at all in your mind. This is given not only to show Christ's victory in history, but it's done in order that you would have ammo in the war today. If there is no long-term success over, of evil over Christ, then all temporary afflictions, all of them, will become nothing. That is, there is no need to despair. I want you to consider what you think about the future of the world. ISIS will be eventually destroyed. They will come to nothing. The American empire will eventually be ended. Abortion will stop in our country. The homosexual agenda, which is seeking to corrupt our governmental procedures and laws, will come to nothing. Many of them will get saved. 
Your fears about Russia that you had back in the 50s, those are done. <laughs> now, I, I, want you to la- I want you to hear the laughter there. Think about how many Christians lived cowering in corners back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, thinking that we would eventually be obliterated by a nuclear holocaust. Christ reigns, brothers and sisters. Build, invest, sow, reap. Dig, plant, chop down trees, plant them again. They'll have time to regrow. Global warming won't obliterate the planet. In fact, one of the promises of God that as long as the earth endures, that is, as long as Christ is reigning, there will be seed time and harvest. Now, are there local problems? Sure. But not such that the profligators of more government control over things like the EPA and state regulation wish for you to believe. Now, that's, an, that's a tangential point. That's a leaf of the tree issue. What I want to solve, for, or what I, what I hope you will resolve to put at the core of your understanding about life is that Jesus Christ reigns, and his reign will not be opposed. His reign is perfect, and it is becoming increasingly perfect. If you want any surety of that fact, I just want you to think about, you know, uh, I think it was Trent Griffin, who's a a guy at Microsoft who gets paid by Microsoft to be their own personal economic uh, theorizer. That's a pretty cool job. Just, he doesn't have to do anything except write economic papers. And he, he tweeted one day, if you, if someone's not convinced that there's been progress in history, just say one word to them, dentistry. If you go back and look at some of the dental advertisements in our country, they're insane. Like, take this oil and your tooth will be instantly healed, or, or what have you. Brothers and sisters, look at history at 500-year increments and see what is going on. The planet is increasingly coming to Christ. Jesus prophesied by his spirit through David that the coastlands, the islands, they will usher in his reign. They will glorify Yahweh in the most remote parts of the earth. Jesus Christ will reign. His reign will be complete. That's why the Hebrew writer begins a letter written to Christians in a terrible cultural context, begins with the reign of Jesus Christ, and not only his reign, but the eternality of his reign and his person. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We pray that you would deliver us from all fear that you would give us confidence in not only how you are running things, but the, the arc of history, the arc of history which will show you as righteous, which will bring all false kingdoms to nothing, which will humiliate and utterly destroy all kings who oppose your rule. We thank you for Psalm 2, which teaches us that we ought to encourage our leaders to kiss the sun and to recognize his authority. We pray, Lord, that you would end abortion in our country and that you would return our people to worshiping you. Lord, we know that no political solution would be enough. God, we ask you that you would revive your church in America, and, and in so doing, that you would be so gracious to allow us first to be delivered from this way of thinking. Lord, we we ask you that you would not only cause us to have a vision for the future, but that we would see it as connected to Jesus Christ, that we would be thoroughly biblical in our hope for the future, not believing simply in the promise of humanistic man's endeavors, that, that there's some great technological 
revolution through history, but that it is all based upon your command, your rule, your reign. We pray that you would be exalted, not only in our hearts, but in our church, in the way that we carry out all aspects of life. In Jesus' name, amen.